Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark and midsummer as it may be, I'm afraid there's no escaping the politics of the Brexit crisis. This week we'll be talking to David Anderson, a barrister and an expert in EU law, and Meg Russell, director of the UCL Constitution Unit, about the role that Parliament and perhaps the courts will play in the tricky months ahead. Will our MPs in the end be able to stop a no-deal Brexit? First, though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's commissioning editor, Alex Dean, to discuss Britain's trade prospects after Brexit. Now, Alex, you've been talking to a few insiders at the WTO who are a bit sceptical about the rules that Britain will be able to fall back on in the event of that no deal. Yeah, so if we crash out um, with no alternative framework uh, you know, agreed with Europe in place, uh, then we fall back on the World Trade Organization. And, and that sounds reassuring. It sounds reassuring. Um, and Brexiteers have been quick to argue that it is, you know, all going to be fine if, if, if we fall back on the organization. Um, and mainstream economists have kind of spent a long time debunking these claims and arguing that actually it would be very problematic. But one thing that I hadn't really seen was the views of the WTO itself basically. So Brexiteers are saying that the WTO provides this alternative framework. Mm. But what does the WTO actually think Actually, think about it? So we talk about it a lot. Um, so I spoke to some figures there. Um, the Director General Roberto Azevedo uh, and then former Director General Pascal Lamy. Uh, and I kind of didn't quite know what to expect. Um, but actually, <laughs> they were... You thought they might be very diplomatic and pussyfoot around a bit. Basically, yeah. I thought they were going to do exactly that. Um but was kind of taken aback with just how hard, particularly Pascal, <laughs> um, went on this idea that actually WTO Brexit would be a very bad thing. Um, the World Trade Organization doesn't provide um, sufficient protection in the event of no deal. Um, does it provide any? It does provide, I mean, it, it provides some in the sense that um, we wouldn't literally fall into a total legal abyss with absolutely nothing in place. Um, but it doesn't provide anything like what we've got uh, with Europe and, and the single market. And new barriers would be erected, um, tariffs, but also non-tariff barriers, um, essentially paperwork, <laughs> a huge amount of paperwork. <laughs> mm, um, and that can be quite, I mean, because tariffs these days, I know from stuff we've run in Prospect with people like Danny Roderick, 
um, compared to back in the 50s or 60s where tariffs would be 20 or 30% on lots of things and you could make a lot of progress by cutting them. They tend to be pretty low now, don't they? And I guess the WTO gives you that reassurance that tariffs aren't suddenly going to spin out of control. So it kind of does. But I guess what I'd add is that tariffs aren't, they've come down generally, but they're not very low on everything. They're still high on some things. And the problem is, there's this question of how you lower tariffs on some things without lowering them on on other things for for different countries who you actually prefer to have the protection in place so as an example of that chinese steel is kind of being dumped on the international market mm. um at kind of cutthroat prices uh, to the detriment of all competitors um and the question is if you have no tariffs on steel coming from europe can you do the are you forced to do the same with Chinese steel? And that would decimate the British steel industry overnight. So no deal means no steel is basically the motto that some people in the steel industry have adopted. Oh, I see. Because this this whole idea of a multilateral architecture, you can't sort of say, oh, we'll put tariffs on you over here because we don't like you, Mexico, but we do like you, Indonesia, or whatever it is. If the WTO stops you picking and choosing like that, it stops you picking and choosing in in favour of sorting things out quickly with Europe. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, It's basically all about this principle of uh, non-discrimination. And another thing that taps into that is this GATT24 clause, which has been, um, (laughs) which sounds extremely technical, um, but actually that's, I think, just where we are in politics at the moment, that previously obscure trade law clauses have become part of the everyday conversation. So Boris Johnson, uh, in his leadership debate with Jeremy Hunt, famously said, um, we can fall back on GATT24 or whatever it happens to be, um, which was (laughs) characteristically evasive. Um, But the idea is basically that there's a bit of trade law that means that no deal would be completely fine because everything we've got now would be protected. And and the idea is that GATT24... ensures continuity in the event of no deal um so that was one of the things that i put to uh the director general and he flat contradicted it basically which is quite a remarkable situation when the director general of the wto Mm. is flat contradicting the man who's now the prime minister of the united kingdom um and he basically said that that that's a misunderstanding of the law the actual reality is that gat 24 says you can provisionally apply a trade deal when it's nearly done, but not quite tidied up with all the loose ends. Yeah. So you strike a deal with a partner, they agree, you're really close down the track to finishing it, and then you can kind of provisionally apply its terms and start that so, so free the, the, trade. So the old deal continues until this new one kicks in properly? Uh, so the idea is that if you take two countries at random, uh, Japan and Canada. <laughs> I don't know whether they have a trade deal, but um, and let's say that Japan and Canada enter into trade negotiations for uh, you know five years, and then they nearly get there as they yeah. kind of just finishing up, just tidying up the ends. Then they can provisionally apply the new free trade deal right. before it's kind of officially formally ratified. That's what GATT24 is talking about. What it's not talking about is a situation where you already have a trade deal and then crash out. (laughs) So it's just simply a misappropriation of law for one thing to another thing. And yet another example of the Brexit debate being clouded by 
you know, select being selective with the facts. Okay, so the economic side of things is looking a bit jittery if we uh, want to know where we stand in terms of process. But what about the rules of Parliament and indeed the law as enforced in the courts? Now we go over to our guests for this week, Meg Russell of the Constitution Unit and David Anderson, uh, who's an expert in European law. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Listening to the Prospects podcast, and as we've been hearing, there's no certainty at all about the economic rules that will bite if the UK does indeed leave the EU without a deal. But what about the political and legal rules that determine whether or not that will happen in the first place? To find out, we're now joined by David Anderson, an expert on EU law, and Meg Russell, who's uh, recently got a new perch at uh, the UK in a changing Europe, as well as her base at the Constitution Unit. Um, I'm going to start with our local difficulties at Westminster first, where, Meg, I suppose the first question is just to double check that Despite Boris's pronounced boosterism, is there really still a solid majority of MPs who really are against No Deal? Well, of course, that's something that we can't test at the moment because Parliament, unfortunately, in my view, is on recess. It's quite a strange situation given the urgency of the Brexit situation. But, you know, on the other side, people are exhausted and they need a break. But it's a shame that we've got a new Prime Minister who was in post for less than 24 hours before Parliament broke up for its... um, summer recess of five weeks so Mm. there's an awful lot of things being talked about at the moment that aren't being tested as they normally would be on the floor of the house of commons but there's no reason to think that there's any more enthusiasm in the house of commons for no deal than there was previously it's been defeated um on one occasion it was defeated by 400 votes to 160 in Mm. the indicative votes and of course at that time 
some of the people who are now on the back benches were still in government. They weren't able um, to vote against No Deal. All of these people who've come out of the cabinet, like Rory Stewart and David Gork and Philip Hammond and so on, are going to be joining the anti-No Deal lobby. So, so you think it's probably still a solid three-figure majority against... I'm not sure I would want to make predictions of the exact numbers. Um, I, I mean, I suspect so. Well, solid. I don't. I would. I would say there's a solid majority against No Deal, but of course it's, it can't be tested because Parliament isn't there. Okay, and so if that is indeed right, if um, Boris's charm offensive hasn't um, won people round, um, what about how the majority of MPs? They're meant to be sovereign in a way. That's the point of the whole Brexit exercise. Can they stop the government or not? And if so, how? Well, I, I argue, and indeed many people argue, um, that they can, um, but it's a matter of will. Um, it's not easy, um, but there are various opportunities that, that they can take if they are sufficiently determined. And I think that there's a danger of um, an environment being created where people are saying, oh, it's all too late, they don't have the power, and so on, and MPs sitting on their hands. I think they need to realise that they do have the power to do this if they want to, but they need to step up and do it if they're really committed to it. And I think there are various mechanisms that they can use. Um, the the two, I mean, we published a blog post about a week ago on this, looking into the different options. The two which are clearest are either to uh, pass legislation, which would probably require them to seize control of the agenda, uh, again, as they did with the so-called Cooper Bill, mm. um, to pass legislation insisting that the government seeks a new extension from the EU. And you'd need to tighten that up this time to insist not only that they seek the extension, but they accept the extension on offer. David might have something to say about how you legally tighten those things up. Um, or should the other. Just, should we just pause sure, there and, of and bring David in? Um, we're talking about changing UK law here with Meg in the end. European law decides who's in the European Union. C can we assume that a government acting, if you like, under duress with its fingers crossed behind its back, maybe will go and ask for an extension of Article 50 and this would be given? Well, at the moment, EU law and UK law speak with a single voice. If nothing more happens, we will be out uh, on the 31st of October at 11pm. And as a matter of EU law, that's because it's two years after the artificial Article 50 notification as extended twice by agreement of all the member states. As a matter of UK law, it's because that's what the EU Withdrawal Act uh, 2018 says. So I very much uh, agree with Meg. There may well be, I think there almost certainly is, a majority of MPs that oppose no deal, but that absolutely doesn't mean uh, that no deal isn't going to happen. And if those MPs are going to stop uh, no deal, and it is a matter for the, for the Commons to stop it, not, I think, for anybody else, they have to be well organised, as well organised as the other side. But do you just like we know that Macron got a bit grumpy last time about the extension. British can't make a decision. If you've essentially got a situation where you've got a government, in some vague sense, sustained by the House of Commons, uh, that says it isn't going to negotiate and it's happy with no deal, but you've got a parliament that doesn't, it'll look like London doesn't have a clue. And will do you think that like? European member states at the council would agree to extend in those circumstances. Unanimously it has to be, doesn't it? I think the first point is that if Parliament put its mind to it, it could stop a no-deal Brexit without an extension and without relying on the goodwill of Mr Macron or anybody else, and I could explain why that is. Um, but if it was 
necessary to get an extension for the purposes of holding an election or a referendum or whatever. Uh, certainly, if it was for those purposes, uh, I'd be pretty confident um, from the noises coming out of Brussels uh, that that's something that would be achieved, albeit perhaps with a bit of grumbling along the way. OK, well, that was enticing, though. Tell us about how we could stop it without an extension. I entirely agree with Meg. There are two main ways that Parliament could try to do it. One is to go the vote of no confidence route, which leads us into the fixed term Parliaments Act 2011. It's untried constitutional territory and it's difficult territory. And I think that would be a risky route to take. In fact, if your main aim was to stop a no deal Brexit, I don't think you'd go the vote of no confidence way. It's risky, first of all, because uh, you don't know um, what the result of the vote mm. of confidence would be. Uh, secondly, if you win, then under the terms of the Act, you have a 14-day period while uh, the opponents of the government try to scrabble together some alternative government, an alternative leader, and I think that's going to be very difficult. And then it's also, I think, risky because if you don't manage that, you then give the Prime Minister uh, the opportunity really by to, to, to call an election and you don't know what the date of that election uh, might be uh, and even if um, a, a government alternative government of some kind is formed you've then got the issue of how quickly does the prime minister have to resign and uh, that's I think an issue to which there's an answer but the whole thing is difficult it's fraught there's and they're saying that they might like say okay we'll give you an election but we'll give you it after we've done Brexit anyway Yes, well, I think there might be um, there might be difficulties with that because the courts could come into play. Now there are difficulties in getting courts to enforce uh, conventions, but if the prime minister say was acting in such a way that was uh, contrary to the objective of the fixed term Parliament's Act, which is to install a new government if there is no confidence mm. in the old one, then I think at that stage the courts might very well intervene, and they would be on on strong ground in in doing so. But primarily, of course, parliamentarians need to intervene in order to present an alternative government, and as you say you know both of these routes are difficult and I'm very, I'm, I'm also interested to hear what David's route is to um, to stopping no deal without uh, without requiring Macron's um, approval but while we're on the question of um, of, of, of votes of no confidence I think that David is right that you know both I see both of these routes as risky um, and certainly there is a risk with that one of bringing the government down and then not having an alternative to put in its place. And again, I think that requires MPs, as David said, to be extremely organised. They should not go into a no-confidence vote until they know that they have an alternative government which can command a majority, because otherwise, as he says, that gives the Prime Minister control of the election timetable, and although that could end up in court, I, I don't think there's any certainty um, that he couldn't then set an election after the Brexit deadline. We'll come back to that in a second, but just on the raw politics, Meg, on, on this confidence. I mean, so, you know, the Prime Minister has gone down because he's lost the confidence vote. There's then an attempt for him or someone else, and we don't know who gets to call this someone else uh, to try and win a vote of confidence instead. But what I think we do know is there's probably a number, perhaps, you know, 100 plus Labour MPs who are very tribal, who wouldn't be keen on a government of national unity. I also think we know that there's a large number of, there's almost no Conservative MPs. And there's po possibly a number of Labour MPs as well who don't particularly want a government with Jeremy Corbyn 
at the helm. And so it's fairly hard to see a majority for any other government in this particular parliament, isn't it? I think that this is awkward both procedurally and politically. I mean, procedurally, when the Fixed Term Parliaments Act was written, it was written in, uh, it was coalition government, but it was still what we might, we might call normal times. I think it was written in the expectation that if a government fell, the alternative government that might be formed to replace that government was it was some kind of a new coalition between party blocs. So, led by the leader of the opposition. Well, led by either the, either the pre-existing prime minister who perhaps lost one coalition partner but could gain another, mm. um, or by the leader of the opposition being able to, you know, supposing um, the Liberal Democrats had abandoned the coalition with the Conservatives and decided mm. they were going to go over to Labour, um, they didn't have the numbers, but you know you could imagine a circumstance where the coalition partner, the centre party, moves over to the other side, and then it's clear that you've got the building blocks of a majority, and it's yep. not really controversial, and the Queen could then appoint that person who could then seek a vote of confidence. The Act doesn't provide um, any mechanism, any you know explicit mechanism to find a majority in this chaotic situation where the parties are completely disunited, and it really becomes the job of... 650 uncoordinated MPs to work out whether they can find a majority for someone in particular. So that's and the procedural of, point. Yeah. I think there are things that they can do. They, they can, there are various tactics that you could use in the House of Commons to express a majority. And if they expressed a majority, the Queen would be duty bound to appoint that person. But as you say, there are political <laughs> obstacles But wouldn't they have a series well? of indicative votes that would find, as we saw earlier in the year, that there was not a majority for anyone? And the, the uh, other point is that even if all these gambits pay off yeah. and the opposition managed to cobble together a caretaker government. I don't think, incidentally, it would be a government of national unity and that would really be unicorn territory. But if you, if you got together a, a caretaker government, the most it could expect to do is um, uh, ask for an extension. So assuming we got an extension from Europe, we'd then be back in limbo again, wondering about the next step. Yeah, and I so think... So it would be an involved procedure and the outcome would be very uncertain. I, th I think the, the, the surest way to build a majority... I'm, slight, I'm not quite as pessimistic as you about the prospect of building a majority, but the surest way to build a majority would be for an explicitly short-term government that did mm. nothing but ask for an extension and then having achieved the extension, dissolve itself and call a general election. Because So you'd need, would you, are you imagining that the most likely thing would be 100 perhaps Conservative MPs um, sitting on their hands rather than voting, you know, rather than voting no confidence? Well, that is a possibility, I suppose. I mean, you need, you need some Conservative MPs to go over and support the new government, I think. And you, well, I mean, you mentioned yes. Corbyn. And I think, um, yes, in going back to my normal times, in normal times, the leader of the opposition would be the person to lead an alternative government. But we're not in normal times. And I don't think that Jeremy Corbyn is the person to lead that government. I don't think there are any Conservative MPs who would support a Jeremy Corbyn government. So I think it needs to be a government led by some kind of a centrist figure. There are various names have been mentioned on the Conservative side, people like Philip Hammond or David Liddington. On the Labour side, people like Yvette Cooper or Hilary Benn. And basically... The noises that are coming from um, Corbyn and his allies at the moment is that they don't want to support such a government. But I think if it comes down to it, that could mean that they, you know, they are responsible for the decision as to whether we go for a no deal or not. 
And they would then get, as the prize for this, because this would be a time-limited government, they would get the general A general election. election where the Labour Party had facilitated a no-deal Brexit. And that is electorally disastrous for Labour. So I think that but Jeremy they go Corbyn's for the national some... unity thing, yes. then they go for an election in which they've, what, acquiesced in stopping Brexit or stopping no-deal? Well, they've, they've obtained uh, uh, an extension. And therefore, I mean, you know, it's a different question what programme a Labour a, a Labour party goes into a general election on you know could they could they maintain their sort of um, ambivalent position on brexit um well they could at least try in those circumstances whether that would be a success for them is a different question but if they facilitated in a no deal then you know their their fingerprints are all over this that would be really really difficult for them aside from the prospects of no deal for the country so i mean we talked already i talked about the, the vagaries of continental politics and we're now hearing from meg that the vagaries of british politics are even more of a fug uh, as soon as we look over that october the 31st deadline which david brings us back to your question is is there a smart way of avoiding um uh having this denouement um like um stretch out into that uncertain terrain and getting this thing dealt with before Halloween. There's a much more focused way of doing it, for which there is a precedent in the Cooper-Letwin bill, if you remember back in March, April. And the point of that would be for the Commons to get hold of the order paper and to produce a bill of its own, like Cooper-Letwin won. Now, we can talk about the mechanics for doing that. It's not straightforward, but there are certainly ways that it could be done, particularly with the help of the Speaker, who's made some quite encouraging noises in that direction. But I think we could do a lot better than Cooper-Letwin won. I mean, I voted for Cooper-Letwin won in the House of Lords. It was uh, it was a valiant attempt um, to uh, secure an extension by giving Parliament the power to require the Prime Minister to ask for an extension. Uh, but it couldn't really require any more than that. What I think would be um, bolder, um, but more productive and certainly more decisive, uh, would be a bill that takes on board uh, uh, an idea that was floated by Dominic Grieve, Joanna Cherry and others back in March when they had the indicative votes. And that would work as follows. Once you get really close to crash out day on Halloween, 48 hours before, whatever it is, and if there is no ratified withdrawal agreement, and if there is no agreement for an extension, so it doesn't matter what Mr. Macron thinks, then at that point, uh, Parliament is required by this Act to have a vote, and it would vote on no deal. And if it voted for no deal, then we'll have no deal. We'll crash out, and that's what Parliament wanted, and there's no democratic argument against it. But if Parliament rejected the crash-out Brexit, then the Act would require the Prime Minister to revoke Article 50. So the notification would be revoked. The European Court has told us we can do that, as long as it's unconditional and unequivocal. Uh, we can revoke. That stops the clock running. It still gives us the power to uh, lodge another Article 50 notification if after due consideration we've decided that uh, we do want to leave. Uh, but we have uh, made that decision. We've made it in Parliament. We don't need an extension. We don't need another, another referendum. And I think the way things are going with people going to one extreme or the other, that's actually uh, a sensible idea and an idea that in the current climate uh, could fly. Yes, it sounds extreme, because Parliament would be revoking the notification, and you could say that that's not what people voted for in the referendum. But on the other hand, it would only be doing that when all the other options have just been rejected. So the option of a withdrawal agreement, there isn't one. The option of an extension, uh, there isn't one. The option of no deal, just been rejected by Parliament. So I think that could so be the way forward. So in effect, you could say that, that what that's doing is it's, it's simply changing the legal default 
from a default that we drop out of Europe to a default that we don't proceed with Brexit? Well, it gives Parliament the choice on, on the eve of Halloween to vote if it wants to vote for no deal. And if it doesn't go for no deal, then you revoke. I mean, Tony Blair has been saying for months that we should have another referendum, that the two things on the uh, on the paper should be no deal or, or revoke. And I know Meg, among others, has made a very persuasive case about how difficult it would be technically to get a, a no deal question on, on the ballot paper, and indeed how difficult politically it would be to provide for a referendum. This would short circuit all those difficulties, and it would allow the decision to be made uh, by Parliament, where in my view it belongs. Um, it certainly fits with British constitutional tradition and all of that, and it makes a lot of sense, but British constitutional tradition's sort of old hat now, isn't it, Meg? We agreed to this referendum. All of the parties, Labour as well as the Conservatives, voted um, ultimately after 2015 that the referendum should happen. They all said they respect the result. They all subsequently fought another election in which their manifesto said that they respected the result. Uh, and this is whatever it's doing legally, politically what it's doing is it's just cancelling the 2016 referendum. And of course you could invoke Article 50 again, but you could always invoke Article 50 if you'd never had the referendum in the first place. I mean, could, could you cons uh, politics is very fluid, but is it so fluid that we could just pretend the referendum has never happened? I don't think it's pretending it had never happened, is it? But we're in a tight spot and <laughs> something, you know, something has to happen. And the, the options in front of us look pretty unattractive. So it's a choice. And ultimately, you know, I think, you know, in terms of the traditions of our constitution, one of the things that I think very strongly uh, and have been saying as strongly as I can in recent days is that at the heart of our constitution is parliament, is the sovereignty of parliament. The ultimate decision makers are MPs. And this is really a moment where MPs have to step up and face the responsibility of these decisions. They can't kick it to the courts. They can't kick it to the cabinet secretary, for example. Jeremy Corbyn mm. wrote to Mark Sedwell um, asking whether he in effect would we could you know we could talk a bit more about that um, whether or not he would enforce the caretaker convention so that we couldn't drop out with no deal in the middle of an election campaign the cabinet secretary cannot rescue us from this situation only parliament can rescue us from this situation and we're kind of between a rock and a hard place so i mean the argument that's made by yeah, but maybe it's for david to make this argument because he he he's recommending this route i think it's quite neat because it is merely changing the legal default. And the legal default at the moment is something very unattractive, which is no deal. Uh, how much more or less unattractive is revocation compared to that? That's the ultimate kind of question. Um, um, but, um, but ultimately, it comes in terms of respecting the referendum result, the people who would support David's solution would argue, well, we didn't have a referendum on no deal. In mm -hmm. fact, it's increasingly becoming clear, you know, people are going back through the media archives and so on to look for people advocating no deal during the election campaign, uh, during the referendum campaign rather, and sure enough, they can't find any evidence of it. All the talk was of getting an excellent deal. So in terms of respecting what people were voting for, mm -hmm. you could say that people voted for a deal. But of course, when the deal was on offer, they didn't much like the look of the deal either. Uh, and, and MPs didn't like it. So basically, we've been having an argument these last three years about 
interpretation of the referendum result and what kind of Brexit we want. And whatever kind of Brexit is on offer, people don't seem to want it, but they also don't want to reverse the decision. And none of these solutions are completely clean. We're going to carry on arguing about our relationship with Europe. We've been arguing about our relationship with Europe for more than a thousand years. Um, But one could at least see the logic of Parliament taking a view as to where it thinks we should be while um, we go to the next stage. And uh, the idea that crashing out would be a clean solution uh, and would end the argument uh, is just completely misconceived because we'd be Mm. immediately back to Brussels trying to negotiate for uh, more agreements, whether they're mini deals or a a maxi deal, with this crucial uh, difference that once we've left the Article 50 process, it's very beneficial to the departing state in that it allows agreements to be made by a majority of the EU 27. As soon as we leave uh, and we want a comprehensive trade deal with Europe, then it requires unanimity. And that's where we get into Walloon parliaments and every little legislature in Europe having having a veto. So we'd be on the same ground, we'd be discussing the same things, the border, the money, um, and the citizens, uh, from a weaker position than we are now. I think we'd be better uh, taking the decision to revoke and having the discussion then. Can I ask either of you if you've got a sense of where this is going, I get up and change my mind every day, but it feels to me like we might be heading for no deal just because there's someone organised and driving that, and I'm not sure there is on the other side. You, you, you may be right, it? and I think any uh, there's really no cause for uh, reassurance um, to look at the figures and say there may still be more MPs who oppose uh, no deal. I was listening to the Liberal Democrats and the Greens this morning scrapping in London, trading insults about how appalling the other lot are. And if the two of them can't get their act together in terms of uh, allocating seats, then I'd agree with Meg, the prospect of any sort of meaningful government of national unity is really for the birds. That's why you need a surgical approach with a very defined objective. And no doubt, uh, once that decision was taken by Parliament, you'd be in general election territory. And uh, hopefully you would end up with um, a government that was able to take some decisions and get some laws through. Because uh, in the year I've been in the House of Lords, we've seen hardly any legislation. You know, we debate wild animals in circuses and whether to extend the leases of Kew Gardens. But at the moment, that's about it, because there simply isn't a majority for anything. I I would say at the moment, prediction is an absolute mugs game, has been for a long time. Um, there's There's no room for complacency, I would say, on any of these things. But... I continue to think that um, it's less likely that we will end up with a no deal because Parliament has the power to stop that. And I think that members of the House of Commons really don't want that to happen. But if they're up against a government which is doing everything that it can do to outfox them, as we've both emphasised, they have to be extremely organised and they have to be very clear on what their mechanisms are and they have to step up and take responsibility for this decision and not just hope that magically somebody else is going to take it for them. Final question for you, Meg. Um, if the um, Cummings-Johnson axis um, succeeds and pushes through the biggest public policy change in decades in the teeth of opposition from the House of Commons... Um, does that mean that parliamentary democracy in the UK is in real trouble? Of course it would. It would mean that Parliament had failed. I mean, you know, there, there, is, there is nothing that says that they can do that. And if they are allowed to do that, then Parliament will have failed in its duty and not taken its responsibility seriously enough. Thank you very much. On that sobering note, we shall end. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with David Anderson and Meg Russell. Rebecca Liu was this week's producer. If you've enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review, which really does help. We'll see you again next time. Goodbye. <laughs>